We want to show people that vacation and recreation and relaxation can happen within 20 miles of your city and that there is such an easier, closer, less impactful way of getting close to nature and like getting outside your bubble and enjoying yourself um, than hopping on a plane. Welcome to the Our Nature podcast with me, Alyssa Benjamin. Our Nature explores the methods, systems, and practices that bring us into greater alignment with the natural world. The opportunity to live a more joyful and harmonious existence is available to each of us right in this very moment. So join me and let's rediscover what comes naturally. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Our Nature. My name is Alyssa Benjamin and I'm an intuitive coach, a back to nature guide and the host of this podcast. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to share a story, something that happened to me that was one of the major turning points in my life. If you've been following our nature for some time, you may have heard this story, but this time I'm going to share much more details about what unfolded for me. So I want to take you back to the early 2018 pre-pandemic vibes. I was living in New York City at the time and working for a company that I had worked at for almost eight years. This was a company that I had dedicated so much of myself to. It was a company I believed in. It was a company that felt like more than a company. I was friends with the founder, with many of the executives, I'd gotten to know hundreds of people there over my almost eight-year journey. In early 2018, I had just started a new role, and unfortunately, I found myself in a toxic and unhealthy situation with my new boss, one that negatively affected my health. And so after I tried to remedy the situation for about six months, I made the measured, difficult, and very terrifying decision to resign. Though it was not impulsive, I didn't have another job waiting for me. I felt so tired and emotionally drained from my current situation, and at the time, I just needed to prioritize my well-being. So I did, and I left. I remember being so afraid. I remember this loud voice in my head shouting at me, what are you doing? You must be crazy. What are you going to do now? You have no plan. And that scared me. But I also remember feeling hopeful, thinking that because I chose myself and I put myself first, I must be really magnetic. And a new opportunity would, of course, quickly come my way. So I started dipping into my savings and I waited, but nothing came through. I put the word out to friends and my former coworkers that I was looking for work and still nothing. I applied to jobs. I interviewed. I didn't hear back. I kept thinking something has got to come soon, but it didn't. After I had used all of my savings, $20,000 worth, 
I had to go to my parents and ask them to lend me money. And it was the first time in my life that I had ever asked them for money. And I felt so ashamed and humiliated. I was 30 years old. As I watched all of my friends reach these big milestones in their careers, mine had crumbled. I couldn't afford to go out to eat. I could barely afford rent. I remember waking up each day and feeling this almost crippling anxiety. I was constantly in survival mode, which made me feel exhausted much of the time. And that exhaustion only reinforced the voice in my head that told me I was lazy and I really truly questioned my capacity to work hard in general. During that time, I often wondered, what if I'll never be able to create or produce anything of substance ever again? I really started believing that the reason nothing was coming was because I was nothing. Some refer to this period as a rock bottom. I call it my low period or my period of dissolving. We might also call it a wintering. It lasted 20 months. It was long and painful. And one of the only ways I got through it was to surrender. Surrender to the discomfort and the emotions and the days where I was paralyzed by fear. And nature helped too. I remember walking to the Hudson River on the west side of Manhattan and watching the sunset or sitting and journaling out my feelings as a gentle breeze rustled the leaves on the trees and in the park. Nature really anchored me during this time and it reminded me of my belonging and it supported me even when I felt hopeless. In these 20 months, a big part of my identity died. I realized that I was so attached to being seen as someone who was quote-unquote successful, who had money, who could be admired. So I began to question, who was I if I didn't have any of that? But once I had faced my worst fears, once I had lost what I thought was so important, my career, my money... I realized that none of it mattered in the first place. In letting go of those identities, I was able to embrace a new reality, one in which worthiness was not tied to my job or my salary, but simply connected to my very existence. Because I was alive, I was worthy of love and care. I was still valuable. When I think of these 20 months, I often think of the transformation of a caterpillar into a butterfly and how the caterpillar has to dissolve into a goo, into a formless, unidentifiable entity before it can emerge as this beautiful, colorful butterfly. And just like the caterpillar, I dissolved. I became goo. And then I emerged. Once I could really feel that my salary and my career did not make me who I was, I knew I would be okay. I became okay. And not long after, I ended up calling in the contract of my dreams, 
right around that 20-month mark. And this was around the beginning of 2020. If remember that. It was probably February, right before the pandemic hit. And I found myself in this situation where I not only loved what I was doing, but I had almost tripled the salary I had when I resigned from my company in 2018. Best of all, though, I didn't make it mean more than it needed to. I wasn't fooled into believing this made me better or worse than anyone else. I share this story because it's a powerful example of what can come from trusting your intuition, surrendering to the unknown, and dissolving parts of your ego. Nature played a huge role in reconnecting me to my true nature during this time. And going through this experience inspired me to help others navigate their own transition periods, their own rock bottoms, their own 20 months, or however long it is for them. I recently opened the doors for Homecoming, a four-day retreat and six-week course that guides you back to nature and back to yourself in the process. This time we'll be gathering in Ojai, California, which is this beautiful valley in the Topotopa Mountains, just an hour and a half from Los Angeles, where I live. I created this course so I could support others going through their own ego deaths. So whether you're navigating a recent breakup, feeling lost about your life's purpose or calling, wanting to invite more balance and presence into your life, or seeking to deepen your relationship with your intuition, homecoming is a rapid version of what took 20 months to unfold for me. Think of it as a great way to collapse timelines or quantum leap. For example, during last year's course, in the span of about seven weeks, every one of my participants had these life-changing breakthroughs. Two of my five participants made the decision to move across the country so that they could live where they truly wanted to be, and one even manifested a new job. And I've continued to stay in touch with these folks. And since the course, their transformations have created permanent shifts in their lives. They've experienced more joy and optimism, possibility and abundance in their day-to-day existence. I'd like to say it's magic. I always think there's always a little bit of magic, but it's also about understanding how to create the conditions that propel you towards what is calling you. Homecoming creates those conditions. I only offer this course two times a year, and the container is small. This time, last time was five spots. This time is seven at most, I would say. So if you're hearing this and feeling curious to learn more, you can fill out a short two-question application. It should take you less than five minutes. And if you sound like you're a good fit for the program, I'll reach out to hop on a call. I'll include a link to apply, as well as a link to learn more about homecoming in the show notes of this episode. And finally, if you're applying and you hop on a call with me, it's just an opportunity to explore if this is the right fit for you. 
I really believe that homecoming chooses its participants, not the other way around. So you will know if your intuition is guiding you towards it. Okay, speaking of creating a life of your dreams, I'm so thrilled to introduce you to my guests for this episode of Our Nature, Nick and Spencer of Solar Punk Farms. Solar Punk Farms is a queer-run regenerative agro-tourism experiment in Guerneville, California. As Nick and Spencer share in this episode, the vision for Solar Punk Farms is emergent and ever-changing. But they've always intended to create a community-first place for people to connect with the land and with each other in the process. For example, they have a link in their bio where you can sign up to visit the farm and help out. What I love most of all is that they bring this energy of fun and enjoyment to everything they create. And you'll hear that in this episode. We also talk about hoping to redefine what is considered aspirational. The concept of place as self. The kismet experience that prompted Nick and Spencer to physically invest in the creation of solar punk farms. What COVID has afforded all of us in terms of connecting with the natural world. What to consider when we enter or settle into a new space and how to create a more reciprocal relationship with that place. The vision and philosophy of Solar Punk Farms and what has surprised Nick and Spencer the most about this journey. In this episode, we really pull back the curtain on what it's like to leave the city leave a city, move to the country, and experiment with building a regenerative life. Like I said before, this conversation was so much fun. They're so much fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, let's get into my episode with Nick and Spencer of Solar Punk Farms. Welcome both of you, Spencer and Nick, to the podcast, to Our Nature. This is actually the first episode I'm recording with two guests. So this is the first for me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm excited about that. Um, Looking forward to it. So welcome to Our Nature. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited. Yeah. Thank you. One of the first questions I ask every one of my guests is about their relationship to nature as a child, because whether it was a relationship that was very close or one that was non-existent, I think it informs the journey that we take as adults in some way, whether it's like a returning to, or whether it's a new discovery of some sort. So I'd love to ask each of you, what was your relationship to nature when you were young? Yeah, so I grew up uh, in San Diego, California, um, and I think I grew up relatively close to nature. I think one thing I spent all of my time at the beach um, as a kid, and I just remember like very long days swimming in the ocean and and hanging out at the beach with friends and playing volleyball. And then on top of that, um, 
my family was very into like backpacking and um, hiking. So I grew up going to the Sierras a lot and hiking in different forests. So I think that instilled in me like a really close relationship and, and constant relationship with, with nature for sure. Yeah. And I, I grew up in Boise, Idaho. So Spencer's the, the beach boy. I'm the mountain boy. Um, I, I interestingly had uh, a little bit of a yo-yo with my relationship. My, my family was very much the outdoor backpacking on the weekends, like constantly trying to make sure I was outside. And I, I almost rebelled against that a little mm-hmm. bit strangely. And I think in my early 20s, when I moved to a bigger city, I was like really into the idea of um, the sort of human built world a bit more. And it, um, I like re-entered uh, my love for the natural world in my 20s. Uh, again, once I realized what living a life without that in my, my world constantly felt like. Um, so I've really swung back since that, but was really blessed to have a very close relationship when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've often found that that is a, a journey for a lot of people, what you were referring to of like, you know, when you're young, you don't have this conscious experience of like, here I am in nature. This is what I'm doing. It's just sort of in, more innate and instinctual. And so similar to you, Nick, I grew up in upstate New York and I was like, get me out of this small town. <laughs> and so I wanted to go to urban spaces and I went to Boston and New York and I started to realize that I was like losing a lot of myself in those places. And it took me a while to, to realize that. But I think this journey has been about like returning home. And I find that a lot of people feel that way because I think the built environment, it is in that, you know, the, the pace of it, the rhythms, there's all sorts of um, aspects to it that are not necessarily supportive of us living in a way that feels that that we can thrive. And so yeah. I think people get to like their breaking point and they're like, well, what, what needs to change here? And it doesn't mean they maybe need to like leave the city, but it's like they, they're looking for something. Yeah. And that juxtaposition I think is really important too. Um, I mean, like all things, sometimes you have to appreciate something most deeply when you experience its opposite. Mm-hmm. So having that, having that like point of reference to really appreciate the way that you feel and um, you know, the way that you interact with nature um, after not having it is just, it's yeah, it's part of our experience these days. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what you said where you felt like you were losing part of yourself. Um, I think like place as self is a really interesting concept. And I feel that really um, clearly with the ocean in particular, um, Nick knows if I'm like having a stressful day or like a stressful two weeks, I'm like, I need to go to the ocean and just like reconnect. And there's something, there's some like part of me for sure that um, dwells there that I can reconnect with. And I think that's important to remember. Um, and I'm sure people have different, you know, ecosystems that they get that from. That is so interesting. Cause like the ocean to me is just, absolutely devoid of that feeling because I never saw it until I was like 17. (laughs) Yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. the exact way that I feel about lakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, that is also interesting. And 
that is, I think that's also an important thing to talk about too, which is like, we, I think we tend to feel most comfortable in places that we know. And so a lot of people I've found say, well, I don't know if I feel super comfortable in the natural world or connecting with the earth. And that is totally fine and, you know, normal because we don't have, many of us don't have like a daily interaction with it. So, of course, we're going to feel it's like moving anywhere. It's totally unfamiliar. And, you know, we don't have an experience of ourselves interacting with that place on a regular basis. So I always say to people, like, it's okay that you feel uncomfortable in certain ecosystems or in certain places or even just in general in nature because it's unfamiliar to you. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting, too, as we talk about sort of like the imprinting of our childhood. I think it's a lot like learning a language, right? Like when we're kids, our brains are so elastic that we can um, adjust to the rhythms of something new really quickly. And so the older we get, probably the longer it takes for us to absorb the, the energy and the pace of a new place. So yeah, we need like, we need like nature entrance programs for adults. Mm-hmm, absolutely. <laughs> That's basically what I'm trying to do. <laughs> we'll see. It's it's a work in progress. And I think you as well, which I want to get into because in many ways, like what a better way to connect with the land um, than to grow to grow something and to, yeah. to experience yourself like in that and specifically in that way. But um, I wanted to kind of zoom out and you have a farm called solar punk farms mm-hmm. yeah. which you describe on your website as a queer run regenerative agrotourism experiment that's a, yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah, <laughs> we, we we couldn't choose from our adjectives <laughs> yeah. i like it it's many things and i'd love to hear the story of what it took to get to this place to get to the point of physically investing in land and beginning the project because you know so many of us have big dreams and and big visions but it's one thing to have that it's another thing to actually double down and do it so tell me about what that was like in the the journey um yeah it was uh wild um and we're still very much in the beginning process of it so i'm sure in 10 years we'll have a better way of really understanding how we feel about it but um, like so many things in the last two crazy years, uh, the move really was sort of brought around because of how much the world was shaken up by COVID. Um, we we knew as we started talking about lifelong partnership and marriage that we wanted to do something like this at some point in our lives, but the timeline on it was way far out. And then when COVID hit and we really had to re-examine what our priorities were, what our relationship to the city was, if we were enjoying it, uh, it made it much easier to take a leap. Um, So, you know, we're in our early 30s and we're super lucky to have both, you know, some of the resources and the support from our families to be able to do something like this, which is just so, such a lucky position to be in. Um, And we knew that when we if we were going to find a place like this, it had to be a community space, not just because that's what we wanted, but because 
that's how we could support it. We couldn't do it on our own. So we looked at a handful of different spots in both Oregon and California looking for this sort of impossible checklist of things. We wanted it to be you know, a piece of land that was big, but not too big because we have very little experience. We wanted it to be um, sort of degraded so that you know we could do uh, a project that would regenerate a space, not just um, you know steward a place that was already really well taken care of. We wanted it to be close to a city. Uh, we wanted it to be close to a queer town. And I think after like making that checklist, we were like, this place doesn't exist. <laughs> and then literally the first place we went checked everything mm-hmm. um, in this town called Guerneville, California, um, on the Russian River in Sonoma County. And so we checked a few other places just to make sure that we weren't crazy about the first and, and dove in. So that's how we found this spot specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think like the longer process was Nick and I were living in San Francisco and um, we had both started getting more into the climate space and we're kind of on top of thinking about our relationship and our future and making timelines. We um, had wanted to feel more connected to land and um in a way that was difficult in the city, um, in San Francisco, a lot of it, you know, economically, it's, it's very difficult to, to put roots down in that particular city. Um, and we wanted the challenge of like, you know, like many modern Americans, we feel disconnected from land and from, and from space. And so we thought of this as an, as something that we could pursue. And, um, yeah, I, I do, I definitely think COVID precipitated our choice because we had started looking very casually before COVID happened. Um, and it was kind of just like this idea we have. Um, and then I think though that we had laid the foundation before COVID happened. And then when COVID happened, it was like, you know what, we should take this more seriously. Um, and even then though, it was kind of like, a million things had to go exactly right in order for this to to have happened and for us to, um, you know, made it happen. Yeah, that the, that's the like really serious story. The funny story that's like kind of half true is yeah, we like funny. built a little garden box in our backyard and we successfully grew like two tomatoes and we were like, we can do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's time to it's upgrade time. <laughs> to acres. Yeah. But I think it was, it just spoke to the power of how much fun we had doing this little thing and like how rewarding this small interaction with the natural world can be. Um, and it just gave us this huge desire to try something bigger. It's interesting. I've been reading, I mean, I didn't read this story, but I saw like this headline of like couple in COVID buys farm and then they like realize how hard it is to be a farmer. And it was like, it showed this couple who had moved from the city. It just made me kind of laugh because my partner, when we met, he had spent most of his, um, you know, young adult life, his twenties and into his thirties as a, a farmer and then a homesteader. And so, um, you know, he taught me a lot about like actually what it is to do that type of work. And, um, and 
I think it can easily be romanticized. Like even now sometimes, I mean, even dating him for years, like I've seen him do stuff like that. But it's still, you know, I find these moments where I'm like, oh, that would be so lovely and leisurely. And but knowing a lot of farmers that I do, I know that's not the case. And so I'd love to hear what your not vision, but like what your um, sense of what it would be was and then what actually it was and what that the the kind of reconciliation was like. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll start. I'll intro. Um, I think, uh, thank you for bringing that up because that's something that we like to make sure is clear for for people listening. Um, Farming is an incredibly difficult job to have if that's your primary job and this but particularly as small farmers like people often will try to start a small farm and like lose all of their savings and you know it it's not always rosy and it's not guaranteed to succeed farmers work on very small margins and that's something to be like very aware of before romanticizing this and we want to say that like we are um have full-time jobs really and on top of doing farming Um, And so right now we're kind of like in a transition period where we're trying to do both. And farming really at this point is um, like our side project and passion that we work very hard on and all week long. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, I'll let Nick kind of take it from there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because that article description that you said it's like is that a new york times article or is that an onion article yeah yeah i feel like maybe it was like that i who knows but it was like (laughs) yeah it's so funny because i feel like i've seen it in both places yes yeah yeah which is and i there is there is that sort of like um overly romanticized part of that but i think what's really interesting and not to say that covid is an opportunity but i think the way that the world has changed because of it has created a new dynamic that people can create because normally in order to live or to experience, um, you know, parts of the city, you had to live in the city. And so what happened was that we were able to all of a sudden do uh, these jobs that could support, you know, our lifestyle from a different place. And so we have really uh, kind of embodied this new, like half rural, half urban, um, place, uh, which has its challenges, but it also has allowed us to be able to run this as an experiment while still having off farm jobs that put, you know, bread on the table and pay the mortgage. Um, and so not to say that that's like, you know, an opportunity for everybody, but it has really become this new way that people can live in the past two years. And you see a ton of that, right? Like Mm -hmm. when we, when we first did this, I think we felt it was a little bit novel. And even in the last two years, we have heard of dozens of people who are running experiments like this. Um, And I think that's a really cool way that, you know, the the world has reshaped itself um, as people start to be able to work more remotely and embrace, you know, being in one place while interacting with another.
Two things I, I want to highlight that you mentioned. I mean, the first I think is the fact that you both have jobs and are doing this. I think this is something that's like come up a little bit around this idea of, I think there can be a perception that if you don't, it's more valid and more sort of like aspirational to go all in on something, you know, to kind of like risk it all, put it double down, quit your job, you know, that also is romanticized. Um, And for myself as well, like I also have a full-time job, I freelance and I, I'm building this business. And Mm -hmm. I've started to realize that it's important to normalize and celebrate that, like whatever way you need to, to structure your life to support what you care about is the way. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, some people, maybe they do need to like quit and double down because that is like the spark that kind of has them create something that they would have been too afraid to. But other people, you know, like myself, like maybe you too, it's like that stability allows you to then be risky and to be creative. I mean, that's what I found for myself and like be experimental. So that's one thing that I think I love that you shared that because it's like, let's normalize that you don't need to go all in. That's not better than, you know, kind of doing both and seeing what happens. And Mm -hmm. the other thing I just wanted to say is that I think there's also a difference between And again, this is like not necessarily a judgment, but more of a celebration of your approach of like, you know, working kind of this idea of connecting with the land, exploring what that is for you, but also doing it with a sense of how that then impacts the community. Because what I found, and and this is maybe, you know, from my own experience, though, I grew up in a really poor town in upstate New York. And during COVID, upstate New York became this like really um, appealing place to go. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy for people to be able to go up there and connect with nature. And, you know, because that's also what I aspire to do in my own way, even though I live in a city. But I also felt like I watched certain things where people just kind of brought their wealth up there, but then didn't have it um, integrate with anyone in the community in any capacity. And I think that was what made me feel a little bit sad because then it just becomes sort of this gentrification situation that's like very insular. Um, So I like that that community aspect is a big part of what you are creating. So yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. I think the listeners would love to hear more about that too. Yeah. I think I'll start with that second point that you bring up. I think that's a really interesting and active dynamic happening as people start to move to new spaces. Um, we, we, um, are sort of building the, the farm here around the idea of, um, permaculture, which is sort of like a, a thought process, uh, a Western word for like the thought process around traditional ecological knowledge. And, and one of the principles of that really is about, they call it pata, which is protracted and thoughtful observation. Um, this idea that when you are doing something new, the most important first step is to 
listen and watch and observe and not impose on the place until you understand how you can beneficially fit within it. Um, and I think that that really was the first year or so of being here because we're cognizant of the fact that, you know, to a lot of people in our community, we are city people that are moving to their space and doing something new with this place or with this piece of land that's been, you know, on their street forever. Um, so it is hard because we want to, you know, we want to make changes and do something interesting and new and at the same time respect the context with which we sit. So I think that's a, you call that out brilliantly and anybody doing big new moves should think about, you know, how they want to enter the space in a way that is incredibly respectful. I think it was Carl Sagan quote, he's talking about like whether or not we should reach out to um, like make communication with potential aliens. And his quote was mm-hmm. a good dinner guest uh, at a, or a good guest at a dinner party always listens before they speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think it's a really nice way to think about how you enter a, sp- a space that's very different than what your previous experience has trained you to, to know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, there's very much, um, if you pay close attention, speaking of Pato, um, and the way people who live here will ask, like one of the first questions they'll ask, they're like, oh, are you, are you here full time? Um, because there's a lot of people up here that um, spend their time between San Francisco and Guerneville. Um, and so I've always thought, I've always like felt kind of proud being like, yeah, we're here full time. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and yeah, community integration has been the goal since the beginning. And one of the reasons why we like were fixated in, on that is that in 2019, we went up to Oregon when we were kind of just I- ideating this concept. And we visited a friend's mom who lived in this rural farming town in Oregon. And um, we were talking to them. And they're like, yeah, some Californians just bought like the town's favorite like breakfast spot. And they shut it down and turned it into a work for home place for the person's like wife. And so that's exactly what we would not want to do. Um, and so like, first of all, like come from far enough away to feel like you have no roots, you have no tie. And so like, that's why we were like, we want to feel like we're closer to the San Francisco and the Bay area so that we have some sort of tenable connection and community. And then on top of that, we were like, we're not going to come in and, you know, take away someone's favorite thing like blindly and not think about that. And so I think that was a really important lesson that we got before we even were thinking about where we wanted to land. And um, so, yeah, we're, we've had a blast meeting our neighbors and um, they seem excited about what we're doing and that's, that's all we could ask for. Yeah. And I think it's, it's even more than just like going to a place and being willing to listen because that's like the, you know, that's the, the, minimum viable mentality of not irritating. But I think the what's been cool is going to a place and assuming that the people around there can make your vision better. Mm. Um, and, and trusting that, you know, you don't know everything and that there's so much more possible with the insight and support of your community. And that's, you know, everybody that we've talked to, essentially we have 
I don't know, nine times out of 10, a conversation um, goes like, we'll tell somebody something and then they'll be like, oh, interesting, but I would do it this way. Why? Oh, because here's some information that you didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so it just feels like every conversation with somebody in, in this community has led to an incremental change, hopefully improvement to our vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a mindset you just have to take if you want to integrate in a place as opposed to you know, change a place. Yeah. And one last minor point. <laughs> we could, we clearly are passionate about this. Yeah. What you said about people like in upstate New York, where they, they come in with a mentality of like, I have what I need. And so therefore I don't need to interact or integrate. Um, it reminded me a lot of just like this extractive mindset where like clearly they're there to glean the benefits of being in a beautiful space that has been like curated and maintained by other people. Um, and so they're there only to receive the benefit of living in that space without, you know, adding some benefit or reciprocity themselves. And that was actually one of the things that we noticed in living in San Francisco, where it's like, it's very difficult for people to put down roots and feel like they have a reciprocal relationship with place. And I think that ends up leading to this very extractive culture where, you know, like they're there to get the job that gives them money to then save enough to go somewhere else. And the whole point of their relationship there is to like, what can I get from this place and then leave as opposed to, you know, what can we help each other do? Um, And so that was one of our motivations for coming up here in the first place is like, we want to be able to, to have that reciprocal relationship. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I do want to say that's not like, everyone in upstate who have moved up there but it's it's sort of naming that like there you know I did observe I have observed and I think it's it's also like it becomes a thing where on top of that then businesses are like okay you know this is advantageous so then you know things start to happen and you know I don't know if this 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 same thing is occurring where you guys are, but you know, one of the things that I noticed, for example, was um, people coming up, and you know, I get it. This is, but it isn't a more extractive mentality of like buying a home. You know, it's their their second home during COVID, like maybe panic buying or something. <laughs> and then <laughs> they realize, oh wait, I don't actually want to be here full time. So then they move back to the city and they Airbnb it or rent it, which is fun because we definitely need places for people to go. And, you know, I use Airbnb when I need to get out of the city. But at the same time, I think where that tends to make me, I think, just feel a little bit sad is when that prevents people who actually want to live and like, you know, make, create roots there. It prevents them from settling because there isn't, there isn't space anymore because it's kind of been um, filled up by temporary and that creates like a transient community as well which like doesn't benefit anyone in the community at large so I think this is just something that will become more and more a reality of our times and I've heard I mean we don't need to get into this but I've heard someone you know say to me like well it's you know it's going to be a renter's you know, this is like the trend. It's just going to be a renter's market from, and that's what like billionaires are buying things up and everything. So I'd like to believe that's not 
where it's headed or I hope that's not where it's headed because I think we need connection to spaces, especially more rural spaces more than ever, but TBD. Um. <laughs> the billionaires and yeah. the class conversation is a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, let's that. like not go down that. Um, but <laughs> let's focus on what you both are doing because it's, it's, it's so inspiring. Um, so tell me, we talked a little bit about it. You know, we alluded to this like community centric project. And um, again, I described it your space or you described it as a regenerative agrotourism experiment. So tell me more about that. What what does that mean or what is that looking like as it stands now? I know it's obviously evolving. So I think there's there's a couple ways to look at it. And this is still very much uh, a project in the making. So, you know, we debate this over dinner literally every night. But I think um, the the space that we're on is is so small that it's never going to be a commercial farm that creates a huge amount of food for the community. So we knew that's not what, what the calling was. Um, so there's really going to be a combination of things that this space is going to produce. One is on a small scale, um, like regeneration and stewardship of the land. And on another small scale, food production, both for ourselves our community and potentially maybe some, you know, fun like-minded restaurant partners or something fun. Um, but at a more abstract level, uh, we also really want to just create education and inspiration. So we want to have, you know, our, our product, if you want to put quotes around something, will be much more about the feeling that somebody has when they leave the place than it is, you know, what's in the jar or what's in their shopping bag when they leave our farm stand. And so through a combination of what we call work play weekends, where folks can come to the space, get their hands dirty, do sort of a, you know, a nature-based or land stewardship-based project, and then, you know, have a nice dinner, float the river. Um, So eat something small like that all the way to workshops or, you know, kids' summer education programs. Um, We've talked a lot about doing things like executive reorientation for, um, you know, business folks who are trying to better understand how they can align their company's uh, mission and KPIs with their personal yes, mission. Yes, yes, KPIs. I'm like, yes, 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 do that. Do that. <laughs> yeah. Ding, ding, so, ding. Yeah, I think the what really is about that education and inspiration component and the how is through farming. Um, so that's that's kind of the the high level model. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have too much to add other than I like your concept of the feeling you leave with and it being about inspiration. And I think ultimately we see ourselves at the intersection of rural and urban, and we want to lean into that and have this place be a place where those two spheres interact and meet each other and learn what they can learn from each other urban people maybe can like offer their skills to people that are starting farms or need help in certain ways. And rural people can teach urban people about (laughs) the cycles of life (laughs) and uh, um, seasons. And like, I don't know, we had some friends up here to help us do crop rows and like, they thought it was so fantastic because it's something so far away from what you normally experience. And it's so fun and 
it helps you see the world in a different way um, without the prompt to start looking at your surroundings and your environment in a different way. Like you often just don't perceive it or see it. And I think that what we're hoping to achieve for at least people coming from cities is to, is to get them to see and perceive in a new way. Yeah. It prompts me, I'm going to try to weave together like four themes that we're talking about into some sort of um, interesting thing. But I think what Spencer's saying reminds us of another goal, which is this idea of being at this, this sort of intersection of rural and urban um, is really important because we're not just talking about all, or we don't want to just cater to all urban people. We specifically want to engage people in the San Francisco area because this idea of local and semi-regional engagement is so important in redefining how people recreate, right? Because everybody knows that we can't continue to treat the world like this gigantic Instagram checklist where you fly all over the place. And when you have two weeks, you try to cram in as many different country vacations as possible because the only way to have a vacation is to get a passport stamp, right? We want to show people that vacation and recreation and relaxation can happen within 20 miles of your city and that there is such an easier, closer, less impactful way of getting close to nature and like getting outside your bubble and enjoying yourself um, than hopping on a plane. So I think, I think that idea of, you know, engaging urban people locally is the goal. And hopefully we, you know, can inspire other people to create more projects like this outside cities. But um, that idea of it not being every urban environment we're trying to engage, but specifically our, our nearest one is super important. Yeah. about what the feeling you want people to leave with you've been on this journey yourselves so what have you discovered in the process maybe for each of you like what has this brought to your life this kind of relates to what solar punk is and so our we're, we're called solar punk farms and solar punk is a genre and movement in art and literature and it's also uh, it's like a form of activism that seeks to answer, like, what does a sustainable civilization look like and how do we get there? And it's kind of like the optimistic response to like dystopian visions of cyberpunk or steampunk work- futures. Um, and I think that what's unique about it is that the feeling that it gives is one of like a possible optimistic future in which technology is appropriately used to benefit ecosystems um, where like ecosystem health is the most important thing as well as like social and human equity and health um, as part of the ecosystem. And so I think that that is like the very high level meta feeling that we want people to leave with, which is like the feeling that 
a optimistic, positive future is possible in which humans have learned to be reciprocal and an integral part to the ecosystems and kind of like find their um, positive ability to impact the world. Is that what's happened for you? Like, do you feel like you feel that in this journey that you've been on? Yeah, I, I definitely think I do. I think that, you know, the process of, I, I mean, early on, it's kind of like a little overwhelming where I'm like, wow, I, there's so much I don't know and there's so much to learn. And, but there's also so much knowledge around us in our community that has like really helped us connect in a lot of ways. But I think mostly what I think has been really um, interesting to feel, which I wasn't really expecting, is just like when it hasn't rained for a while, like I feel it, you know, <laughs> like I am worried about our plants in a, in a way that is impossible until you create that relationship. So I guess it's being emotionally connected cuts both ways where I now have this capacity to feel really worried <laughs> um, as well as super hopeful about, you know, like what I'm seeing and what I'm witnessing while here and um, your ability to, to impact a space beneficially. So I'm curious to know what next things. Yeah. That was like a, a beautiful high level philosophical um, answer. So I'm going to take the opposite track and do the much more, um, guttural emotional layperson approach but i think the the thing that i really want people to feel is that work like this isn't work and that it's actually just really fun when you're doing it with community i think a lot of the ways that people spend time in cities is they're trying to stimulate by like doing frivolous things that don't really result in uh something being made or something changing or happening and that's great. There's a lot of consumption and I, I understand the need for that. But like we joke that we're never going to be bored again, never in our lives. Are we going to be like, what should we do? Because there's always when you're acting in a way, you're you know, acting with a stewardship mindset, there's always something to do. And I think what we really want to show people when they come here is that farm and work have this connotation that it's going to be hard and it's something to get through. But when you reframe it as like play and getting your hands dirty and making stuff, it just takes on a whole new vibe. And so I think what's, what's really important for us is to show people that this is, this can be the thing you want to spend your time doing because it's so rewarding. It's not something that you have to do in order to have enough food to live. And I think, that has truly been the thing that I have personally learned most is that never in my life have I been more exhausted and never in my life have I been so happy at the end of every day and like excited to do it again tomorrow. And, and when people come up and get to experience that with us, it just gets even better. I find that it's, um, it, in some ways it's so simple what you're doing, but it's, it's so powerful because I often think about in my work and I often talk with other individuals in this space about how like we can't protect what we don't love. And on this podcast, I don't really talk explicitly. I mean, I do mention it, but I, we don't talk a lot about 
climate change and environmental policy and environmentalism because the angle in for me is like, let's just have you have like a really intimate and deeper connection with the earth. Because once you have that, there's no way you're going to act and behave and have a perspective in the same way that you had before you developed that experience. And so it's like, you know, I think we're running against a clock and we don't have a lot of time. So there is like that kind of urgency. But I've definitely found that, you know, the the pervasive like sort of climate change and environmental narrative is like humans have destroyed. It's like destruction. We are bad. We've destroyed the earth. And part of that is true. But I think the question I've thought about and one that I've talked with some of my guests about is like, but is that the thing that inspires people to change and to behave differently? No, no one's going to change from like shame and guilt. In fact, I think it paralyzes a lot of people, which is why they ignore all of the climate change news and stuff. I mean, I know for myself because it's so overwhelming and depressing and there's so much grief. Um, I think it's important for us to learn about these things and face the reality of our times. But what I love about what you two are doing is you're sort of saying like, let's take this narrative, flip it and be like, how can we as humans create a situation where our environment can flourish around us and how can we steward that and how can we, you know, be not the catalyst for destruction, but the catalyst for like growth and life and, um, and make it fun. Yeah. And I I love that because I always say when I take groups, so I'm getting my forest therapy certification right now to become a forest therapist. And I've, I've led groups before, on different walks, not like on like forest therapy walks, but, you know, on walks to connect in and and in different capacities. And I'm always like, guys, we don't need to be so serious right now. <laughs> like this isn't like a solemn experience. Like let's connect to our inner child. Let's play. Let's have fun. Nature is fun. It's exciting. It's like, you know, so I, I just love that you lead with that. And that's something that was clear to me from like your Instagram and just like the way that you approach everything. It's through this lens of like fun and joy. And I do believe that's the thing that will heal our relationship. And that's the thing that will be like that, um, that catalyst for change. So I just like that. That's what you lead with. Yeah. Spence and I, a couple of years ago, we were trying to, as many people who think a lot about climate um, do try to think about, okay, how do we build a framework for all the ways that we can make a, you know, an impact in this fight. And so we came up with this thing we called the Pentagon, which is just all these different, like, how do you, you know, make an impact socially, professionally, economically, blah, blah, blah. And it, you know, it kind of looked like every other framework that people were talking about at the time. But the thing that kind of made it different that we got really excited about was in the middle of all of that, you have to care first. So how do you, how do you create caring about the problem? Um, Because none of those other things matter unless you start with that. And I think that's sort of the nexus of what we're trying to do here is get people to actually care and think that this is enjoyable. So you want to do the rest of the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But you nailed it with what you're saying with that. Um, And I think on top of that, people don't want or respond well to shame and guilt. And I think that that's been something that 
we're hoping to capture maybe with Solar Punk Farms Instagram and just actually what we do here <laughs> um, is the concept of redefining what's aspirational and mm-hmm. like shame and guilt and feeling bad aren't aspirational. And so it's like, how do you create something that's joyful and fun and inviting um, while being beneficial? And so I think that that is ultimately what we hope to do. And it's something Nick says a lot, which is like, we started this to redefine what is aspirational and like what people will want, what models they'll look at to things that they want to create in the future. And so that's what we're hoping to do. Yeah. No more white picket fence. Yeah. Two and a half kids. Instead, it's like small homestead, 17 neighbors that live on the place with you and raising your kids with that entire crew. Yeah. And while like not being a off-grid siloed commune, you know, right, like right, we're very right. much integrated as well. <laughs> yeah. I have a few questions just about like how you, when we talked earlier, you told me like you guys had grown those tomatoes and you were both like, great, we, we can do this. Yeah. And then, you know, had a, had a reality check. So how did you learn how to do any of it? We read a lot before going, uh, for before moving up here. Um, and then we took a permaculture class from a local um, organization called the Occidental Art and Ecology Center. Um, and so those were kind of like our two big learning sessions. But of course, you learn by doing. Um, so Nick, you can finish your experience of... Yeah, I mean, we actually were talking about this yesterday, that what's so cool about this space is that unlike a lot of other, I don't know, I don't want to call them professions, but a lot of other spheres, there's a lot of gatekeeping. It's all about getting to the top and competing with other people. It could not be different in the world of farming. Everybody just wants you in and wants to help you as much as possible. So, you know, reading and self-education is massively important and you know, we live in the 21st century. Every bit of information that could possibly be useful is out there. So just Google and research. But the other thing is just we talked to a ton of people and every single person has something to offer and they want to offer it to you. And they yeah. will ask you to come out to their land, show you around for four hours out of their day. Thank you for it. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. have, we have a neighbor who came over with his small tractor and helped us dig this berm that we're going to turn into a a hoogle culture mound and spent all day working for us essentially and doing us a huge favor and then he brought over lemon curd as a thank you we were like (laughs) like how does this work well but i i think that's so powerful because my partner when he was doing his homestead he had like a similar experience where you know there's this sense of like community support in these spaces that I don't think is familiar to people who live in a city because in a city in some ways it's just necessary you have to kind of like protect what's yours you know there's just like it's there's a you ever there's so many people in such a small space but that's healing it sounds like it's pretty healing in itself to just go somewhere and realize that people want to give to you and be generous like I feel like that's pretty transformative it's pretty wild how many people we've reached out to who will just like come by and 
walk around for two hours with us and give us advice. Like, yeah, it blows me away. It's been incredible. Yeah. Spencer's like a remarkable networker and literally everybody he reaches out to will be like, yeah, what are you doing Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) I've never in my life seen a community that wants to grow so desperately and like the earth is trying to make this happen. It feels like sometimes and Mm -hmm. like, it really does feel like, you know, there's this groundswell of not even just desire, but like deep emotional, like reward waiting to be tapped into and the community wants to give it. So all you have to do is start asking and it'll, it'll be like drinking from a fire hose in no time. Yeah. Or the guy that a local guy who grew up here is helping us do our irrigation right now. And like every day he's here, he is like, I'm so excited to work on this project with you. And like, he's just like so excited about what we're doing. And, you know, it's really special coming from someone who grew up here, um, who feels resonant with that. So that's been really, really special to feel. And you'll do the same for maybe, you know, maybe once you guys gain all your knowledge and, you know, 20 years from now, there'll be a young, you know, young folks coming out and you'll be able to do that for them, which is really nice. I just have one more question before we get into the last section, which is a rapid fire round. Um, I would like to hear from each of you, but what has surprised you the most about the last, how long has it been? Year and a half or so? Yeah, like 20 months, something like that. Yeah. 20 months, three days, who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) You're like checking off every day. (laughs) Honestly, the thing that has surprised me most is... I lived in a city for 10 years. I lived in San Francisco for 10 years. My life was so deeply rooted, not even in that physical space, but just in the routine of that space. And I have, I was shocked how quickly I adjusted my routines and adjusted what my desires were and what my tastes were and what my new favorite places were. And I think it just speaks to the fact that change feels very scary but humans are so incredibly elastic and resilient that when you make big changes, you will adjust. Mm -hmm. And if you believe that it's the right change for you, the discomfort lasts so much shorter than you think it will. Um, So I think it's just like, if I could go back and, you know, give myself advice, it would just be, you are thinking this is going to be a way bigger change than it really is. And you will adjust very quickly. So I I was really pleasantly surprised how little resistance I felt in the big move. Mm -hmm. I was just surprised by how good our tomatoes were. (laughs) (laughs) You thought they were good before, but now they're really good. (laughs) Honestly, our tomatoes were so surprisingly good. (laughs) Honestly, and I I hate saying that because like, of course, everybody everybody thinks their kid is the cutest, but our tomatoes were legitimately the best tomatoes. Yeah, I've ever had which honestly, life. like we didn't do anything. It's like whatever magic is in our soil, but um, that was truly surprising. <laughs> yeah. What has been the favorite thing? Your each of your favorite things that you're growing or going to grow, other than tomatoes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Oh, you can't say tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, we just planted uh, our first 30 trees oh, and the first, the first year or first two seasons or winters, we were doing soil remediation because this was a, a compacted horse property before we were here. 
So we've been doing a ton of soil repair with cover cropping and stuff for the last two years. And we finally put trees in and they like just bloomed. Like the first couple of our stone fruits just uh, put their little buds out last week. And it was like, I'm going to not cry right now. (laughs) I'm very excited about the trees, especially just because like it's a, that's a 10 year piece of joy that you have to wait for. Mm -hmm. Um, So I am personally just, over the moon about watching those trees start to develop. Yeah. I have two since last year we completely failed at growing corn. Um, I'm very excited for this year's corn and I'm also excited for avocados um, and to see if they should grow here. And we're excited. That's a big experiment. Yeah. Yeah. That's that I'm super pumped for. Yeah. But that's also the fun thing. We talked to somebody recently who, we were telling him all the reasons that, you know, our dream list of plants, you know, wasn't going to work. And, you know, some people had been like, don't try it. And he was like, everything's in a experiment. Stick it in the ground. See what happens. Yeah. And it, and it's okay if it fails. You know, we, like I said, my partner was a farmer and then a gardener um, and taught like gardening programming for a while. And so he had high ambitions for us. And we tried to grow in like on our deck in little pots some things that um we knew we couldn't get anywhere so like we tried to grow uh now I'm like totally blanking but like okra and you know just Mm -hmm. like a few things and um moringa we tried to grow moringa um (laughs) anyways (laughs) we just it just I think you know he's from the northeast so am I like it's a totally different kind of thing to grow out here and I think just the heat and the it was just anyways they all failed I mean we we do have some rosemary and we did grow alpine strawberries that we enjoyed for a while which was great wild strawberries um but yeah but it's like but also like it's okay. Like people are so afraid to kill things and it's like, whatever, it didn't work. We tried. Yeah. And you learn. Yeah. That's the and if you learn to propagate, it's like basically free to try again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, so the last section of the podcast is a rapid fire round. I'm going to ask, you know, I'm like, how do I do this? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the questions and then each of you will answer and we'll just go through each question. Okay. Okay. Yes. So Nick will go first for those listening. Okay. What is your favorite place in nature? Waterfalls. Mm, Redwood forests. Interesting. You guys said the opposites of where where you grew up and what you liked in the beginning. I love it. Okay. (laughs) What is the animal mineral or plant that resonates with you the most? Dolphins. Um, Foxes. I just learned that about myself. Wow. Wow. Another (laughs) ocean one for me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) What is one thing we could do right now to connect with the natural world and bring more harmony to our lives? Plant something. Ooh. Um, start identifying plants around you. This is a great opportunity to to plug the Seek app. Spencer Spencer wrote a great a while back about this app called Seek, which is a simple little plant identifier app. I'll let you talk about it. Yeah, (laughs) you download it and you can identify plants, animals, fungus, all sorts of things in it. Um, I wrote about how it like helps you connect to nature. So, yeah. 
Okay, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for people. What is the greatest lesson nature has taught you? That humans can be helpful. They're not just extractive, but we are part of it. I think seasonality and cycles of, in metaphoric language, like death, decay, rebirth, I think is super important metaphor. Complete this sentence, nature brings me. Bliss. Inspiration. Love it. Thank you both. This was such a joy. (laughs) It's such a great way to start our days because we're both on the the West Coast. So thank you. I'm going back to bed now. (laughs) And good night. Congratulations. You've made it to the end of my conversation with Nick and Spencer of Solar Punk Farms. If you're anything like me, I bet you're already dreaming of visiting the farm and really experiencing what it's like to put your hands in the dirt and help build this inspiring vision. I know I'm already planning a visit and when I go, I'll be sure to share that with all of you. Until then, wishing you a wonderful rest of your week. See you on the internet or on the trail. Bye. You just listened to an episode of the Our Nature Podcast. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review it. Thank you so much for listening. Stay curious, and I'll see you next week.